Dear listener, welcome to Eco-Activist Journeys. My name is Leah and I'm a fourth year University of St Andrews undergraduate student studying sustainable development and international relations. Today we'll be talking with my friend Gabby Frank, a fellow University of St Andrews biology student and we talk about the importance of designing sustainable cities for our future. We talk through examples of the most sustainable cities in the world and Gabby shares insights from her time in Singapore and what makes it such a sustainable city. We also talk about conservation within cities, how to increase green spaces and Gabby shares insights from a biology and ecology perspective. This is a recording from St Andrews Radio and I hope you enjoy this episode. Today I'm joined in the studio by someone who I did a radio show with for a long time before in first year, my friend Gabby, who's also a fourth year student and Andrew studying biology. And yeah, if you've been listening to my show since 2017, perhaps you remember, I can't remember what we <laughs> talked about in past shows, but today we're talking about urban design and what makes cities green, how we can make cities more sustainable, conservation in cities and all around that topic area. Um, Gabby will also be sharing more about her time uh, in Singapore and what makes Singapore such a leader in um, urban infrastructure. And yeah, we're really excited to talk to you guys about the topic and I'm pretty excited too. So welcome Gabby. And I'd love to for you to like, I don't know, introduce yourself and share a little bit more about what first got you interested in the topic of urban design and sustainable cities. Of course, thank you for having me. Um, my name is Gabby. As Leah said, I study biology at St. Andrews, but specifically my degree is um, ecosystems and conservation. Um, so that's kind of the perspective I look at cities through. Uh, for me, what's so interesting about urban design and urban development in general, development in general, is just that, you know, it's such a prominent aspect in every point of our lives. You know, like a huge majority of people live in cities today and it's so important that we have the right infrastructure in place to support those people, but not only support those people, but to optimize life for as many mm -hmm. people as possible. Um, so I think there's kind of three different perspectives to look at cities from. Um, and today, obviously, we're going to focus on the sustainability aspect. Mm -hmm. There's also the people aspect um, and also the economic aspects of mm -hmm. cities. And there's such a unique place and ecosystem um, that they're going to be more and more and more important for us to talk about in the study as time goes. Yeah, and on that topic, why why do you think it is so important that we address sustainability um, in cities, um, especially as yeah in the years to come? Uh, like I said, I think why it's so important is because these cities are often the places where all of these you know. Uh, climate issues are happening, whether that's pollution or just gas emissions in general. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's pollution not only what we think of pollution as, but also sound pollution, light pollution, noise pollution, that's all coming from cities. Mm -hmm. um, the countryside generally tends to be, you know, we're, what we're pretty happy with. So when we're talking about sustainability, there is already a focus on cities and urban living. Mm -hmm. um, and it really is just going to be more and more important as urbanization advances. I think by 2050, there's an estimate of like almost 90% of people will be living in cities at that point as well as that the developing world needs as much um, work as possible put into their development strategies so that they can be sustainable and healthy for people, um, but still be able to develop those cities. Like, we can't stop people just mm. because we want to tell them, don't, don't create these cities, they're bad for the environment, but we try and make them as environmentally friendly mm. as possible. No, I definitely think there's a great opportunity that lie within cities because we're seeing this trend of 
urbanization of more people going to live in cities. So how can we actually make those healthy and sustainable spaces? So yeah, I'm really excited to talk further on that. Um, but maybe you can like introduce a little bit, like how does climate change actually impact the future of our cities and our life in the cities? Well, I mean, there's all the normal things we think about um, in terms of climate change overall, but I think one of the main issues that sticks out to me is that cities experience the urban heat island effect. I'm sure you've studied it. Um, and that they're just a whole, like, all cities are very homogenized because of that effect. And that's not a good thing for, especially from a conservation perspective. And that's only going to get worse as climate change actually exacerbates the urban heat island effect. Um, I think that's kind of the main point there. Yeah. but just everything still impacts cities, right? So sea levels rising, mm. um, any kind of pollution, anything that can, I mean, we're talking about also like, this is kind of getting off the topic of climate change, but you know, zoonotic <laughs> which are so prevalent right now, um, that's caused by globalization mm. and urbanization and the fact that people live so densely together mm -hmm. that can be spread so easily. Um, it's just, there's so many issues we need to focus on. Um, climate change, I think, is a big aspect of every issue. So no yeah. matter what issue you bring up, there's always going to be, oh, but climate change is probably going to make that worse. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very true. Um, and, and what do you think? What can we actually do to make cities um, greener? And what makes, what what sort of defines a city to be more sustainable or more green in that term? I think there's a lot of different definitions. Um, if someone was going to ask me from... The biology department, what I think makes the city green, I would probably say we generally measure that by how much green cover, like literal, <laughs> not just from a sustainability yeah. perspective, how much green cover is over a city um, versus gray cover, which refers to impervious surfaces like concrete and roads, um, which are really bad for the environment because um, of like soil nutrient runoff and chemicals and all of that. Um, and then also, spaces but also private spaces mm -hmm. so gardens kind of count into that um and then from more of a you know what makes it green as far as mm -hmm. sustainable um i think it really ties in all those different perspectives of if you do good things for the people which are efficient public transport mm -hmm. um good accommodation like making sure the infrastructure of buildings is sound so mm -hmm. there's no kind of uh leaking or taking advantage by pests um just, I really think that like everything you can do to make a city better really is by making it greener. Yeah. Um, and I'll t I'll touch a little bit more on specifically how that is as we go through more of the questions. Yeah, I th I think that's so true because as we see with many of those, the topic of sustainability in general, it's it's a lot about what's good for us as people is usually also good for the environment, or what's good for the environment is usually good for us. Let's put it that way. Um, but yeah, I think it would be really exciting to look a little bit into some examples, like what are actually some of the most sustainable cities in the world, like in Europe, in Asia, in America, and maybe you can share some examples of that. Yes, I can. So kind of when I was thinking about this question, there's going to be a lot of different answers mm -hmm. to this, just because there's so many different measurements of sustainability. Um, but one of the major links, at least looking at the top sustainable cities in the world, is that those most sustainable cities are also the most wealthy cities um, that tends to be. So I know that based on um, an official measurement that came out last year, Zurich is at the top, which might be surprising to people because it's not what immediately sticks out to you as a green city, but it's because they have great environmental regulation, um, amazing public transport, mm -hmm. their climate initiatives are really good. Um, but all of that is because 
Um, they're so economically healthy, so they're able to have those. Um, and I think that really sticks out to people um, looking into developing countries. It tends to be, if you're developing, obviously you have less money, so you don't focus on the environmental aspect. You focus on the people aspect um, and really the building up your city part. And then by the time you are developed, that's when you kind of switch plans. You have enough money to focus on mm -hmm. the environmental part. That's not what we want, yeah. obviously, um, but that tends to be how it works. Yeah. So I think, I, yeah. Yeah. I think that's actually maybe something that needs to be challenged because in the end, looking at, I think that's causing a lot of problems, especially in developing countries that then suddenly um, it becomes a secondary thought, but it's also that has a negative impact on the people living there, right? Because it would be more useful in all cities to have a good public transport system that is cheap and that is good for people to use rather than everyone then relying on having to get a car because technically that is also, um, but then it's not put into the planning process, right, um, of how cities are done and designed. So I think that's definitely something that hopefully in the future, city when cities are being planned or expanding, um, that is being put more thought yeah, into. Yeah, I have um, first example we can talk through. If you've been there, maybe mm -hmm. we can discuss the cities. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, Zurich is amazing for public I've transport. So that's cool. <laughs> No, but all of Switzerland is, I mean, there's a lot for the whole of Europe to learn from Switzerland's public transport system, um, just in terms of like their trains and their efficiency. Um, like I know coming from Germany, of course, everyone's like, oh, Germany public transport is really great. And it is great. But like compared to Switzerland, I think there's still a lot of improvement that even in Germany can be made with regards to how reliable trains are and just how smooth the whole train network works. Um, and also that we're actually seeing a lot more people going um, in trains. I think that's something that I've realized when I travel in Germany, that it's just like trains that can be so full just because so many people are using them. And there's actually not enough infrastructure for the amount of people that go on trains. Um, so then we're seeing this um, overfilled trains. We're seeing um, a lot more delays and, and, and just difficulties, I think. And that's also sometimes to do because the infrastructure is not, um, doesn't can't is not coping with the demand yet, and we need to sort of expand on that. So I think there's definitely a lot that can be learned from um, how cities approach sort of public transport and those things. In yeah, general. I mean, saying that the other thing that I noticed looking at the cities on the kind of the top twenty cities list is that they also tend to be cities which I associate at least with being more community oriented. So I, that just emphasizes that concept of the best things you can do for your people are also generally the best things you can mm. do for the environment. Um, and preferably both. Yeah. Hopefully they both um, factor into each other. Um, so the other city in Europe, which I found, when you were talking about Switzerland, also Scandinavia mm. is so well known for their mm. sustainability initiatives. Um, apparently Stockholm out of Oslo and Helsinki is kind of the top sustainable mm -hmm. one just because they have an amazing recycling program. They recycle, you probably know this, but they recycle <laughs> like literally everything. Um, is recyclable, which is amazing because here in Scotland, very little is actually recyclable. Yeah. Um, they also make sure everything is labeled like where it comes from. Mm. So you could literally, you know, pick up a fish and they'd be like, oh, this is the sea that that comes from, from this trader, from, you know, yeah. that fish market. Um, which is something I think at least my area in the U.S. is starting to work on. It's really exciting to be able to learn about that. Um, yeah, I think just tracing where your food comes from, of course, sometimes it says like very vaguely, like which countries certain food comes from, but actually understanding like the journey or like maybe even specific, specifically where it comes from or from which farm it comes from, I think that is like. Well, I think if people, I mean, I've had to watch documentaries on like farm versus wild sanitary, mm -hmm. you have to. 
And, you know, if you actually label salmon as this is a farm salmon, people are less likely to go, oh, I would rather have, they would say, I would rather have a wild salmon than a farm salmon. Mm. But when you show it at a fish market and you make no differential, people don't even go through that decision process mm. of which one do I want. They just, you know, they just pick up a salmon. Yeah. Um, I think labeling is something that needs to increase and that's very important within sustainability. But just because, like, it's really hard sometimes making sustainable choices because you just don't know everything that goes into it. You can't see like carbon labels or like where it's coming from or what's gone into it. And then I think just you need to go out of your way to find out about if something is sustainable, what it contains and things like that. So yeah, I think that's really great to see um, places like Stockholm really taking that um, form of labeling on. Um, and of course they have like good public transport, mm. all of those community initiatives that we discussed before. Mm. Um, I think these cities kind of have to go the extra mile in some department or <laughs> top 10 sustainable cities list. Um, now I'm going to focus us to Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just briefly touch on Singapore. We'll talk a lot more about it after <laughs> in 10 minutes. Um, but basically their big initiative is that in 2008, um, they implemented an environment building program where any greenery that's lost on the ground due mm-hmm. to construction or um, deforestation, whatever, um, has to be replaced by being on buildings. Mm-hmm. In the sky. So they actually don't lose green cover. And every planning initiative has to take into consideration the environmental aspect by law. Um, so, and there's that's how it should be. It's so cool. Way more. <laughs> Singapore, but that was kind of the one thing that sticks out to me um, about why it's so sustainable mm. and why it is considered the most green city in mm-hmm. Asia. Um, Seoul is second to that. Um, mm-hmm. And again, both Singapore and Seoul are probably, arguably, the most, well, we've got Hong Kong and Tokyo mm-hmm. as well, but they are very wealthy cities mm-hmm. in Asia. And that's why they can afford to do these initiatives. Um, Seoul has this really interesting land recommendation. They're, rec- they're reclaiming land mm-hmm. from like wasteland um, and pollution oh, sites. Okay. Um, so they're adding on green cover without really having to do too much effort mm-hmm. into it. Um, they're also so community oriented. Like out of all the cities, Seoul takes the cake for that. Because mm-hmm. um, their socioeconomic gap is very, very low. Mm-hmm. Everyone has equal opportunity to the same services. Um, I think that helps with the environmental aspect. Uh, yeah, and they also mentioned Hong Kong was good, but I think Hong Kong has other issues as well. So, yeah, but it is kind of on that top, those top mm-hmm. Asia lists. Um, I don't know if anything to add. <laughs> <laughs> we move on to another continent. But. Um, no, yeah, I think that, that that's really interesting. I think there's a lot that we can learn from. I'm really excited to, and we'll dive into that now as well to hear a little bit more about, yeah, Singapore. But let's let's listen and hear a bit about more uh, America. And I know that's a very different situation in terms of Europe because yeah, the public transport say, system is so yeah, different. Yeah, exactly. It's very different, and definitely the European cities are definitely higher on the list than any of the um, North America or South America cities. Um, but if you were to just look at that continent, um, the top one in the U.S. is San Francisco. And that's because very early on, like 20 years ago, mm-hmm. they decided to implement environmental initiatives. Mm-hmm. So like at least Seattle, which is also known for being a green mm-hmm. city, it's called the Emerald City. And their programs we didn't implement until like 15 years after they did. Mm-hmm. So San Francisco really takes the cake on being on top of it. Um, for example, they are hoping to be waste-free in, like, five years, which is incredible. Nowhere is it, <laughs> right? Um, solar energy, they really have this very strong, like, uh, solar panel pr- program there where they subsidize solar mm-hmm. panels um, people put up. 
Um, and then also farm to table restaurants was also one of the mm-hmm. emphasized things for San Francisco. Um, I think those are so important. Um, a lot of, you know, very sustainable cities probably are also going to have a lot of vegan restaurants um, mm-hmm. or farm to table restaurants. And then as far as South America, which is interesting because I feel like people don't really talk about South mm-hmm. America very much in terms of sustainable cities, at least. Uh, Montevideo in Uruguay, um, 97% of their electricity comes from renewable energy. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Is that crazy? Yeah, that's, that's so, so cool. cool. Um, and just like, as in most other cities on this list, they're also very walkable and have tons of public green space. Like it's like 120 meters of green space to every person who lives there, mm-hmm. which is amazing. Um, last one, Canada, uh, Vancouver to be specific, um, they have the lowest per person greenhouse gas emissions in North America due to the carbon tax, um, and also a lot of green space. Um, so that's one city where I'm sure you talk about the carbon tax a lot mm-hmm. on your show. Um, they implement it very well, and it really works for them. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because I think carbon tax can dum- be done quite can can be done either really well or really badly in terms of that it's actually not reaching the goals that. It needs to be reaching, so it's really yeah, interesting to learn about um, cities and places and how they implement it in terms of how that is actually done successfully. Um, but yeah, on the exciting topic of um, Singapore, because we touched a little bit on that um, when you talked about cities in Asia, and, and I know you went on a study abroad semester in Singapore at the beginning of this year, so I'd love to hear a bit more about uh, Singapore and what makes the city so sustainable or like what inspired you there during your time or if that even like maybe sparked your interest in urban design more? It did! <laughs> As Leah knows, um, I took an urban ecology class when I was in Singapore and that was just really eye-opening first of all to be in a place that's you know one of the number one green cities in the world and also be able to be learning about it. Um, so I am just going to mention some of the reasons why Singapore is such a green city. First of all, um, urban greening is such an essential part of the urban planning process. Luckily, not well, I'm not sure lucky is the right word, but Singapore is such a new city because mm-hmm. they only got independent from the British government in the 1950s. So they mm-hmm. made their plan in like the 1960s and they knew they wanted to be the garden city, mm-hmm. is what they wanted to be called from 60 years ago. Um, so they've had so much time to work towards that goal mm-hmm. and they um, really re-greening everything. Um, so there's certain types of trees they decided to plant, they clean up the waterways, um, they really just like went all out on it. I, but I really think the reason it was so successful was because they were able to build from the ground up. It wasn't mm-hmm. an existing city. They were able to develop it as it went. But having those environmental goals mm-hmm. there um, resulted in, it worked for them, which is amazing. Um, they also have an incredible amount of green space. As I said, they keep like their green space doesn't change. They always have tons of green cover, um, even if new buildings are constructed. Uh, I think the most famous example is Gardens by the Bay, which is this beautiful. It's they call it like the green lung because it's in the middle of Singapore, um, and it's just a huge sprawling green area. Marina Barrage, which is kind of this like green roof, intensive green roof, um, basically a park. People go, <laughs> like, you walk up this, like, spiraling set of kind of a walkway, and then there are little like, kids up there flying kites, and this place is huge. <laughs> so you walk underneath it, underneath it, you're like, okay, this is a huge concrete building structure. Um, and it's just so interesting how they really have, they're such a tiny city, and they've really reclaimed as much land as possible. Um, the other nice thing about all this green space is they are right on the edge of the water. 
which is where kind of the climate change issues come in. Mm -hmm. And having that amount of space actually helps to control flood control mm. um, because, you know, the plants can really root the soil and, um, you know, prevent it from washing away. Mm. I think it's really cool to look at specifically how, like, even to construct or how, like, that works in terms of having green roofs because they're so cool. But, like, wow, it's just it, there must be a lot of thought that goes into making sure that, like, works in terms of, like, um, how it's constructed. So, I mean, yeah. green roofs, I could talk <laughs> totally different. You can have so many issues with green roofs and really implementing them correctly. First of all, it takes a ton of money. It's so expensive to have an intensive green roof like the one I just described. It's all used as a community mm. area. It probably generates a lot of money in ecotourism. You know, yeah. It brings money back to the city to be sustainable. I think that's something we really need to focus on when we sounds sad, but when we market sustainability to a city planning program, yeah. is it, you reap a lot of benefits. It might be expensive at first, but you get a lot of benefits yeah. from that. No, definitely. I think that's a that's something that needs to be promoted a lot more because, I mean, that's so cool. You hear about that. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I want to go to Singapore now <laughs> because it just sounds so cool. So anyways, I mean, the sustainability aspect is only one of them, but it's amazing. Um, is it also very community-centered then because you say a yeah, lot of those definitely, gardens and definitely. parks? Yeah, um, MRT, which is the kind of like subway above ground, below ground train, um, is amazing. And it's really funny because you get there and all the Singaporeans kind of complain about, oh, sometimes sometimes it's like, they complain about the MRT. <laughs> but these places are so clean, you're not allowed to drink water on the bus or in the station. So there's like no even like opportunity for anything to go wrong. And then also, they're always on time. Mm. They're, I'm pretty sure they don't run with a conductor. They're always on time. Every time. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, people, I don't like the tube and you know the new york system that, that's not how it works they're always late they're always early yeah you're never really sure it's going to work um the other thing that i wanted to mention which relates to that is that we have such a high tax on cars extremely high um to the point where the vast majority of people don't have cars um and if you have a car you're like that person is rich <laughs> like, they have to be because it's first of all buying a car such high taxes also, just like having a car in Singapore, um, like the gas is really expensive because they don't import much of it because um, mm. not that many people have cars. <laughs> uh, so they have a great bus system as well, which I took advantage of. Um, and it's also very walkable. Um, all the good things you want for a sustainable <laughs> city, really. Um, one thing people generally complain about when they're in Singapore is how strict the laws are. But like the no littering law is... Like five hundred dollars or something ridiculous if you're caught littering. No litter. No litter. That's amazing. You know, like like how much nicer would the environment be if people literally are like it's it sucks to have that fine. Yeah. But it's really not a big thing to not litter. You know, like it's not like you have this like inner urge that's like I have to litter, you know? Yeah. Um, they just say that and that just defers people. Like I really don't think people like first of all you don't litter. I also don't think people really get caught littering. But, like, it's just such a deterrent. It's amazing. Um, so there's that. And then also, let's see. Um, they have a lot of environmental initiatives are really common, and there's a lot of awareness there. And I think that really helps so that the people are very supportive mm -hmm. of their environmental initiatives. There's no really pushback against that. Um, at least for me, I was at the National University of Singapore. And in the dining halls, um, they always were um, 
you know, plates and silverware and things that they could clean mm. really easily, but there's never any kind of real waste. If you're having a condiment, it wasn't like you get like a sauce packet. It was like you have to go to the station, they have the actual condiment in a bottle there. Um, and then when actually when COVID happened, instead of saying, oh, well, now everything's going to be on paper plates, um, they actually gave everyone um, like Ziploc boxes mm-hmm. to go to the dining hall, get food. It's your Ziploc box. You're in charge of washing it. Mm-hmm. Which sucks, I guess, in the short term. Long term is good. Um, and so there's, they still didn't generate any waste, even with COVID. And I think that's one of the things we talk about a lot with COVID is that how yeah. much kind of waste it produces. Um, and I don't think, yeah, like that's an issue to show that it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, it's not necessarily that. Like, I mean, I was writing, reading an article uh, from Greenpeace the other day, and I was like, well, there's a lot of evidence and statement from medical doctors, and you can find that in different places that actually say, um, you know, it's actually not in like plastic is not inherently like more hygienic necessarily. There's no, ne- there's no need to then have everything at disposables. Um, as long, like as long as people actually make sure to like clean them or that there's a, a system in terms of how then it's exchanged or food is given into, bo- like, I don't know, people's own Tupperwares or things like that, um, is done. So obviously there's some like things that have to be thought through, but it's really great to hear that. Um, yeah, there there initiatives like that, even when during COVID that things like that happened that they didn't then say, Oh, okay, well now we're doing everything disposable but still looking for a different solution. Um so yeah, that's that's so exciting. Um and yeah, I love I love hearing about that, especially hearing about how some of those um financial incentives can actually help um cities. Um but also just how I don't know how just like it's efficient with with regards to the how the system works, how people um, function within it. And I think for me, ideally, I also wouldn't want to live in a city uh, where there's so much car and air pollution because you want to be in cities that have like parks and places to walk and where um, the air is fresh. And like, I mean, if I wouldn't have to have a like, if I don't have to have a car, like, why would I? You know, why would you get one? Exactly. And I think one of the things that urban planners, um, at least environmental planners, talk about a lot is that if every like having a dense is actually a good thing because that's when you have the opportunities for public mm. transport to be really efficient. Mm. Um, it's when you have areas where everything is very sprawling mm-hmm. in terms of like suburbia that it becomes a lot harder to have sustainable initiatives mm. like that. Just drawing on some of the topics that we just talked about um, with regards to um, cities, and I know we talked more about the sustainability aspect, um, but I wanted to um, hear a little bit more, more about how can we actually encourage conservation within cities and make increase that like green space within them. Right. So I guess when we're talking about conservation, the first thing that normally comes to mind for people is biodiversity mm-hmm. um, and the number of species we have within the city. And from what we know is that fragmented populations are not good because obviously their genetic diversity is really low. They go can easily go kind of into an extinction vortex and go locally extinct. So the best thing you can do for a city is try and keep it as connected as possible to green spaces um, where these kind of wildlife populations can live. So sort of like green corridors. Exactly. Great. So ah. our project here, but even on a broader uh, scale, um, there's a lot of, green corridors as in Mm. um, tunnels that go under roads or highways or other kinds of ecological barriers is what Mm. we would call them. Um, And the other interesting thing that I've kind of thought about recently is that riparian habitat and by that I'm referring to habitat that's on rivers or on water sources Mm -hmm. 
those are the best places to conserve. Hmm. So if you had to make a decision between green space smack dab in the middle of the city or green space on the water, we'd want to choose on the water because that's where the urban evader species, the ones that don't do well hmm. in the kinds of climates we create with cities, um, can actually thrive a lot better. Hmm. Um, so the issues with cities is they're so homogenous because of their climate effects that you get so many invasive species. Um, like we, I, like as you know, you can pretty much go anywhere in the world and see a pigeon. Um, <laughs> Singapore actually is different, but they have their equivalent of a pigeon. So um, there's a lot of animals which really just fill those niches, um, rats especially. Mm-hmm. That's a big one as well. In the U.S., it's coyotes um, that are the urban successors there. But yeah, no, I, there's so many mm-hmm. issues that are very unique to cities, which is why I think yeah. urban ecology is so important. Um, conservation should really be part of the environmental planning as a whole. Mm. Um, I'm also involved in the Hedgehog Friendly Campus Initiative at St. Andrews. Um, and what they're trying to do is just encourage people to make sure there are spaces within the city that the hedgehogs can move. So that mm-hmm. might mean just like making sure one of your fence posts are slightly shorter mm-hmm. so a hedgehog can come in and out of your backyard. Mm-hmm. Or even just, you know, with your kids, you can just make a little hedgehog house and make it friendlier for them. Um, mm-hmm. Those are animals that we like, luckily, so mm-hmm. we want to encourage them to come back. Uh, there's also, I, I mean, this is what I'm looking at because my dissertation is on urban evolution. Um, there's a lot of pest management strategies that they're actually starting to say, well, maybe genetic engineering, scary, controversial <laughs> topic, um, could actually be something we bring in because if you can genetically engineer an animal to go extinct, basically, locally extinct, like a rat, which are mm-hmm. really bad for our ecosystems as a whole. Um, but that's a way you can exterminate that population without affecting, you know, the tropic cascade of carnivores above those rats, above above those rodents in the cascade system, or um, any other kind of small animal that might also, you know, ingest or denticide. Yeah, um, I mean, it's really interesting to look that it's. And there's obviously less of a species biodiversity, especially within cities, just because they're those um, dominant ones that just have taken over the cities, like, for example, rats or, or pigeons or, I don't know, um, in some places, seagulls, yeah. I guess. <laughs> um, and also looking at, like, like what you said, what uh, the Green Corridor project was happening in St. Andrews is just actually um, connecting um, more of the green spaces with each other so that um, animals can actually travel through them um, because if it's just, I mean, even just small green spaces are good, but if it's just like a tiny patch, like that's usually not a habitat big enough. Well, it's exciting because a lot of times what people focus on are birds. Um, we like birds. They don't really do damage. We like them. And especially with projects like Green Corridors where mm-hmm. we're eventually we're setting up for like little tiny forests, mm-hmm. right? Um, and those are going to be great for birds because it's easier for them to travel. They just mm. pick up and fly over a roof into the next green mm. space. Those are going to be less useful for bigger animals, mm. obviously. But it, I think it's going to be a big difference. I'm excited well, although hedgehogs might be able to then, no, like, travel uh, through No, it's so true because, you know, the trees grow, they drop their leaves. That's prime hedgehog habitat. Mm. So maybe... 
I think there's a lot to like look at within Hedgehog because obviously there's like such sad stories around because they can't travel. Like if they cross roads, then if they see a car, they'll just roll together instead of running away because that's the defense mechanism. And then they'll get run over by a car or, and then because a lot of gardens nowadays have fences. So like you said, it's important to build those ways that they can actually travel and live in yeah, different places. Yeah, they're very vulnerable. They actually got put on the UK red list mm. as vulnerable to extinction officially um, this past summer. So kind of now is the time to act. And it's such a small scale project and it's so local that, you know, if we can't get this to work here, then how can we be, the, I'm sorry, I'm going total opposite thing. <laughs> be trying to like control conservation programs of like abroad in exotic mm -hmm. countries if we can't even control our conservation programs yeah. here and if you have a garden i mean that's such an easy thing to do look at how how can you make it more hedgehog friendly how can you make a little yeah. corridor or little, leave a little yeah, hole I mean, in your fence not even hedgehogs like uh backyards like i was saying like private yeah. green spaces are really important for mm -hmm. wildlife as well um and you know putting up a bird feeder as long as you're smart about what you're feeding the birds and you do it all year round mm -hmm. can have a huge um effect on the biodiversity of species we see in an area uh, for example we put up a couple bird feeders at my flat in st andrews and i've never seen a gold crest before which is the tiniest bird mm -hmm. in the uk never seen one before showed up at the bird feeder which was really exciting um we've had like congregations of blue tits and cold tits which is it's just we haven't seen that before normally mm -hmm. you just see your normal like town sparrows so mm -hmm. Actually, a little bit off the topic, but on the topic of like bird feeders, because there's obviously a discussion around some people like, oh, let's just feed them in winter. But you just said it's like also important to actually look that they're fed the whole year round. Um, yeah, that's because, um, well, because when you provide a constant mm -hmm. food source like that, the birds obviously start depending on it. Mm. But that's why you're more likely to get nests around your house. Mm. Um, it really becomes vital for them because animals never know where their next food source is going to come mm. from. Uh, so, I mean, if you're going to feed them, at least feed them <laughs> over the whole winter. Yeah. But actually, the issue often is that people start feeding them in the fall, mm -hmm. get kind of into winter, forget, or you go home for Christmas oh. or something like that. And those birds suddenly they have no food source. If they're a migrating bird, maybe they were supposed to have migrated, mm -hmm. um, except that now they're stuck because they decided your bird feeder was the best place to over overwinter mm -hmm. where they are. Um, so there's a lot of issues with that. But luckily, at least in St. Andrews, you can tell there's a lot of really good bird feeders. Um, yeah, no, I think that's important to highlight because I think sometimes there's also a little bit of a misconception around that of just like, oh, it's doing it a bit and like, oh, that's helping. But actually that it can cause problems if you then suddenly stop feeding them, especially towards the winter month. The other uh, miracle conservation worker I think that we could implement into cities is having more lakes and water sources, even mm -hmm. if we make them, you know, a man-made lake in a public green space, you see so much wildlife. You see so many mm -hmm. types of ducks and swans, and um, it's a source for even the nocturnal animal, animals, which most urban animals are nocturnal, um, to go to for water. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can't survive without water, so if we just pave over all of these green mm -hmm. areas, that, that we're still not giving any chance for animals to survive or thrive. Mm -hmm. So. And it's it's so nice, right? I mean, people love sitting next to little lakes or See, ponds yeah. or so, like, rivers. All of the stuff that can benefit <laughs> the environment are, also benefit human communities. So yeah. it doesn't make sense to me that you wouldn't think, oh, we should have this. We should have more green rooms. We should have more green spaces. The only issue in my mind is where do you get the money to fund that? Mm. But if you know it needs to happen, 
you can find the money somehow. Mm. Maybe that's a conservation perspective. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe um, the next question that I have is how, how should we frame conservation within urban environments? Yeah, so I think for a long time, conservation has been, in, especially in cities, has been framed from like crisis narrative. It's kind of the same overall, right? We mm. just hear, you know, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And there's not really much we can do to stop it. We can only slow it. But actually, at least for cities, um, we're kind of trying to reframe it as a dynamic narrative, which just means, you know, some areas of the cities are, are different. Um, the city is constantly changing, so that's why it's dynamic, and that's why we need to conserve it like like how it is. Mm-hmm. We can't say, oh, this is this one ecosystem that we want it to stay the same because historically it's been that way. Mm-hmm. If the, the cities are just so easy, are just so volatile that you can't just say that you need to have a constant management program that is constantly evaluating the different risks there's going to be new ones and as climate change um warms the climate or cools it depending on where you are uh it, it, the city's going to change mm. <laughs> so we can't be like oh it's just going to get worse and worse and we'll just leave them that's not a good way to look at it it's a better way to say um oh it's getting worse here Let's work on that. Let's improve that, but also make sure we have kind of backup plans for those species. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, it, huh, it, like, there's two ways we can make cities, and I think people have. It's called kind of like either we spare the wildlife by having these really dense cities where it's just a city, then like green all around it, so then the wildlife can live in all that green space, or um, we share. The city with the wildlife which means the city's much bigger and kind of more sprawling mm-hmm. um, and the wildlife navigates around urban infrastructure mm-hmm. so i think the consensus is that we need to try and make more of a sharing space mm-hmm. versus a sparing space uh, but depending on the city you can kind of look at it from either mm-hmm. um yeah aspect. i think it's 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 also interesting because most of our cities nowadays um we I think it's we need to look at like how can we make the existing cities more sustainable mm-hmm. um, rather than necessarily like let's build new ones because we're already using a lot of land on the earth. Um, so it's more of looking how can we make that um, more efficient? How can we bring back nature within the cities? Uh, I don't know if you know any like examples or any ways of how we can actually bring nature uh, back to cities that are maybe very urban or very like gray areas. Uh, I mean, once you, like I said, once you have the green space, mm. it tends to be colonized. You hope that it's with the urban invader species, which are the ones we like, but are forced to leave cities and not the urban invasive mm-hmm. species. Um, but for example, in Singapore, they didn't have otters since like the 1970s. Um, and they clean up their waterways. They provide a lot of riparian habitat, like I talked about. And suddenly they have like, like not huge that's maybe a little bit of an exaggeration but they have multiple families of otters that have moved in they're very docile you'll see like photos of you know like 20 different singaporeans standing around this family that's just like having like a sunbathe in the middle of the um kind of walkway of the green space and they didn't invite those otters they didn't reintroduce those otters Mm. those otters showed up by themselves when they gave them the habitat Mm. to enjoy and thrive um, so these originally all this green space was for the people, mm. but it didn't impact just the people. It also impacted the environment and yeah. conservation efforts. And I mean, it's just amazing. That's something that I found really interesting to see, like how 
um, nature can sort of re revitalize itself sometimes and come back and animals come back. And we saw that obviously a little bit at the beginning of lockdown in some places around the world that just like animals started coming back more in areas or started taking over in areas where and previous in the past they were maybe driven out of. Um, and I think, yeah, it's, it's a lot more looking like, well, this is our shared planet, really. And we're living with all of these animals and species. And it's, of co- it's important for our own survival also to conserve them. But then how do we make sure there's this coexistence um, of humans? And, and there has animals. to be. And that's where it raises all the issues of there are just some animals that are never we can never integrate into a city. Like, you know, lions and wolves. <laughs> um, oh, if we... Imagine this kind of doom scenario where the entire world is just more and more increasingly urbanized. Where do they go? What do we do with them um, if we can't share the space with them? Do they just have their own little tiny quadrant in every continent where they get to enjoy their tiny quadrant? Um, or do we really try to live as much as possible? Um, so I really think what we need is like very organized efforts on what, how do we imagine the world to be? in tw- even just 20 years to make a difference <laughs> yeah, yeah. um and how can we help developing countries that are now implementing their own strategies um to become developed cities mm. how can we help them have it from a more sustainable perspective also with reference to what you said earlier around um city sprawling um i think it's really important highlighting the point like well how do we make cities sort of um how do we get people into cities but not make cities expansive, making cities denser, I guess? Um, yeah, maybe you can talk a little bit on the importance of actually having cities more compact rather than just spreading it out across a really large area and taking up more and more nature, even if it contains, let's say. Yeah, so from a conservation standpoint, I actually think more of a sprawling city is mm-hmm. kind of what we imagine, mm-hmm. but from a sustainable, less of an impact on the environment, definitely a denser city because like one of the things they say and maybe this relates to the song i just played um <laughs> is that you would imagine new york city is not great for the environment they mm-hmm. do have high pollution levels um but actually per person who mm-hmm. lives in new york city they're doing very well environmentally um mm-hmm. and that's really interesting to me i think if you're going to say let's have the least impact on the environment you would want these like pinpoints of really dense cities and then really green areas for the rest of the country mm-hmm. um and that would be the best way to do it um but that kind of involves like also new york city you don't see anything but rats and pigeons um and maybe like there's some nicer wildlife there as well um but that's that's a scenario where we can't have we can't conserve wildlife within cities because everything is so dense and there's so much um gray surface area but in contrast singapore is also a super dense city like new york mm-hmm. city and they are doing, they do have so much green infrastructure mm. um, and they do have wildlife and mm-hmm. they thrive there. Yeah. So I guess having very dense cities, but still having as much green cover as possible yeah. is really the right solution. Um, and green roofs are something that we can implement into existing cities, mm-hmm. which is why we need to be doing a lot more work on them, even though they are very expensive. But, you know, the more people who want one, the more, the less expensive they become. Yeah. So, yeah. No, I think that is that's um something that we really need to look into and I think um it's also really exciting to see that um 
that there are places that are implementing more green cities or that are making spaces for parks because we see those are community areas and we see and I think what we see is that there's not one approach to a sustainable city right um, around the world that will look different depending on um, the I guess the resources that countries have the habitats that are there how the city already is if it's already a very dense city well then how can we bring in more green roofs or if it's a very sprawled city it's like well how can we make sure these natural habitats connect to each other or have more trees planted throughout, I think, as well. Um, and just having small spaces of nature, but then maybe that connects. I really just think as many opportunities as we can to bring in green space. Like, it, it it might seem difficult, but actually, if we just plant trees along every road, mm. there's so much more green space we have already. Um, and it provides so many more ecosystem services that it makes financial sense to do that. Um I think right now, just awareness is the first step. Um, having more people who are environmental planners mm-hmm. um, being able to um, do their jobs and really emphasize to cities, you need to have this. Mm-hmm. And for your city to thrive, you need to have as much green space as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really passionate. I love it. Um, yeah. Can you explain to us what is meant by the term the luxury effect and how does that relate to yeah, sustainable so cities? This is a very recent um, concept. Basically, it's the theory that higher, like, so first of all, obviously there's socioeconomic diversity within a city. And it tends to be that high biodiversity um, correlates, has a positive relationship with high um, wealth income. Mm-hmm. So you tend to see that in wealthier areas, they have better green spaces, which is why they're better biodiversity. They have better infrastructure because it's more built up against, um, you know, invasive species. And actually, from an environmental perspective, um, that's what we call environmental injustice, Mm. is that just because you live in a poor neighborhood, which theoretically is all you can afford, you have all of these impacts of, you know, it's more polluted, there's uh, more pests, you have uh, a much higher chance of having rats infest Mm. your house. Um, Also, one really interesting one there is that I've been looking into is the gut microbiome diversity is a lot less because biodiversity in general is less mm-hmm. in poor communities. And what that means is, therefore, those people are far more vulnerable to disease, mm-hmm. which is something people are talking about with COVID right now, mm-hmm. is that that could be a reason why, uh, at least in the U.S., marginalized communities um, of certain racial ethnic backgrounds seem to have COVID a lot more mm-hmm. than you know more privileged backgrounds. Um, so it, it's really important. Um, and there's also just, uh, it, it, it really affects the ecosystem at large. So while we say a city is homogenous, it really isn't um, mm. because there are socioeconomic factors mm. that come to play. Yeah, And maybe that has something to do with, you know, Seoul, um, which has such a small socioeconomic gap, also being a very sustainable city because mm-hmm. it's, they can have green space widely spread. Everyone has an op- opportune chance to interact with wildlife or not to interact with wildlife. Uh, so just, you know, you could argue that in order to have better conservation within cities and more better sustainability, that really we just need to target um, wealth gaps and, mm-hmm. you know, spread the income out more mm-hmm. evenly. I think that's a really great link between um, environmental um, environmental concerns and social justice, because it really shows us how interlinked these topics are. And that we really need to address social justice issues in order to be able to address environmental issues and vice versa, because they're so interlinked. And it's a justice issue that 
people don't have access to uh, or live in really bad um, environments that are disconnected from nature, that are really polluted and things and like that. And it also comes into so many studies recently say um, the less you interact with wildlife, the more of a negative perspective you have on conservation. So really it's the cycle of if you can have better biodiversity, better wildlife, then that makes sense. Yeah. Um, then people will have a better perspective on conservation so that mm-hmm. there will be more conservation. <laughs> exactly. I think that leads us to maybe conclude with the question, well, how does green infrastructure benefit people? And I think we probably alluded to this throughout the show already. But yeah, any final thoughts, Gabby? Uh, I think it benefits people <laughs> in so many different ways and mental health and physical health. Um, it benefits the environment as well, obviously. But, you know, everyone wants to live somewhere where um, there's green space outside your door. Mm. Um, and everyone should have the chance to be able to do that. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's a lot to look forward to when we when we look at actually creating greener spaces we look at creating community within cities um addressing and it's, it's like you said it's it's addressing so many issues at the same time it's addressing um social justice addressing how can we actually plan cities how can we address some of the big challenges that we're facing with regards to climate change with regards to conservation so yeah it's a really exciting topic thank you for sharing your like thoughts on it and <laughs> um, you're passionate about it it's really great to hear um and yeah i hope you as listeners enjoyed our show today um, enjoyed listening to um yeah to gabby and me talk a lot about sustainability in cities and urban design um and yeah have a wonderful after- rest of your day thursday afternoon um and a good rest of your week dear fellow human being thank you for tuning in this has been a live recording of my radio show uh, on St. Andrew's Radio, Star. And this is the fourth year running that I'm doing the radio show. And this semester it runs Thursday at 4 p.m. UK time during the semester. And if you want to join in for the live show and if you want to leave comments and have some interaction, please check out the site standrewsradio.com. Other than that, I hope you really enjoyed it and um, if you want to reach out to me, please do so. I'd love to hear from you uh, and also if you have any suggestions for future um, shows or future topics that you would love me to explore and discuss, let me know. My um, Instagram is at ecoactivistjourneys or at ecoactivist.liam and the Facebook page is at ecoactivistjourneys. That being said, whatever you are, whatever you're facing at the moment, I wish you all the best. I wish you lots of strength and hope. And um, yeah, hope you have a wonderful day, a wonderful evening. Um, Sending my love.